We know you like to stay up to date on all the latest news. It's why you're listening to this podcast. Well, now you can stream our podcast and several others like it on Spotify. I listen to my music on Spotify, but I'd not listened to a podcast until just now. And it's really easy. Just open the app on your mobile device or desktop, click on the browse channel, then click on the podcast section. You can also stream on your smart speaker. Start streaming today to stay up to date on the world's latest news on Spotify. Welcome to Displaced, a podcast from the International Rescue Committee and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Ravi Gurumurthy. And I'm Grant Gordon, and we are your co-hosts on the show. This is really the podcast you should be listening to if you care about human suffering and how to reduce it. We get into the weeds of humanitarian crises, response, politics and policy. Every week, we have conversations with policymakers, humanitarians and innovators. We'll be talking about the causes and consequences of war, how to save and improve lives, and how those working on these issues think about their work and their world. Today, we interview John Prendergast, who's been a vocal advocate and activist. He served as the director of African affairs at the National Security Council under President Clinton, and now founded the Enough Project, which is a fascinating organization focused on ending mass atrocities in Africa, uh, exposing incidents of mass violence, and ending the trade in conflict minerals, as well as building a huge constituency of interest across college campuses in America. The Enough Project has been really controversial in part because of success and in part because of its embrace of celebrity activism. If you want to get Ryan Gosling stumping on behalf of your humanitarian project, John Prentergast is the man to call. In this conversation, we went deep into the weeds of the role of celebrity activism in shaping humanitarian aid and politics and policy. We reflected on the current situation in South Sudan, an area where Prentergast has been intimately involved and often so advocating for on behalf of the ruling regime. And an interesting part of this conversation is the way in which Prentergast has changed both the target and the content of his campaigns over time. I think this is actually a thing that often goes unnoticed in the debate around uh, this type of advocacy. It was really interesting to get into the weeds of. So without further ado, let's get into John Prendergast. John Prendergast, we are thrilled to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining us. I'm going to be honest, I don't think I've ever had the opportunity to do a podcast with somebody who's been the base character for a romance novel. You literally have a book written about you by Jane Busman called The Worst Date Ever. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That was probably the low point, right? <laughs> when 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 someone entitles a book The Worst Date Ever and it's about you, it's not going to be, you know, everything is uphill from there. So um, basically I was receiving these messages from a, from a writer whose background seemed a bit shady, you know, did a lot of uh, celebrity reporting and stuff like that, and then also wrote for comedy shows. So I didn't really know how to situate her into the pantheon of the great writers of the 20th century. And she, um, she said, well, we really got to meet. We got we to talk about this terrible thing that's going on in uh, northern Uganda, the Lord's Resistance Army. And I don't know. It just, it just, you know, it was just one of many, many people who wanted to talk about it. And for some reason, we just never connected. And so I went off on my trips, spending, you know, months in the, in the field. And, and eventually uh, I heard, you know, she, she's, she's on the trail. She's coming. So long story short, she wrote a book and did a off-Broadway uh, play, uh, which toured all over the world, in fact, about her attempt to try to, track me down 
And then once she did, how what a disappointment! <laughs> it was it was a big enough disappointment to go off Broadway. <laughs> I mean, and 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 eventually we became friends. She's an amazing lady. But I at first I thought, oh my gosh, this is terribly embarrassing. But it was uh, it turned out to be kind of a great way to tell the story of the Lord's Resistance, Resistance Army and Joseph Coney and the child soldiers and all this stuff in the midst of this crazy story of this woman who was kind of had this idea of this dream person, which I certainly am not. And uh, she, uh, you know, ch- chased and pursued me while she was chasing the story. But the readers learn all about what was happening in the place. So, so tell us about the Enough Project. Well, we started 10 years ago. Um, I, w- I had worked in for 30 some years, you know, all over uh, Africa in war zones. Basically, my entire life spent in the con- in attempting to try to address different aspects of the worst wars in the world. So I started as a humanitarian, then moved to human rights, moved to peacemaking. I worked for President Clinton in the White House and, and the State Department as a diplomat working on the peace process, and eventually ended up with International Crisis Group, which is one of the you know, preeminent organizations on war and peace in the world. And I felt the one kind of common denominator was that, you know, Everybody cares. It's not that they don't care about these terrible human rights atrocities, these famines and wars that are unfolding on the continent of Africa, but the political will to actually utilize the policy tools that could actually make a difference were, was very low. And so I thought, and I, one of my old partners for for that last thirty years, Gail Smith, who ended up as Obama's um, uh, AID director, U.S. Agency for International Development director. Um, uh, she and I got to, she was working for Center for American Progress and I was working for International Crisis Group. And ICG, International Crisis Group, had wonderful analysis of the conflicts and great recommendations, you know, but an audience, very, very narrow audience of elite foreign policy people. Center for American Progress had this great machine they were building, a brand new organization almost that John Podesta was building that was just all about getting the word out on particular issues. So we said, how can we combine and create an organization that focuses only on one region of the world, this region that one could argue is the deadliest in the world since World War II in terms of conflict-related deaths, Northeast and Central Africa, right there between Somalia and Congo, that whole region in there which includes the Sudans and, and Ethiopia and, and, uh, and uh, Rwanda and Burundi and all these, and, uh, all these war zones, and Congo especially. And so uh, we said, how can we combine the great work that's done on the ground by International Crisis Group with the, with the great ability to communicate that Center for American Progress has and build a sort of soup-to-nuts entity that focuses on trying to drive political will and policy change for one region of the world. So that's what enough roots were. And what's the sort of model of political change that you've got there? And how has that changed as you've gone through these different incarnations that you've just spoken about? So the, 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 the hilariously sad thing is that we built this entire edifice on the idea that we just, we need more political will to do the things we are already doing, the way that the international re- community responds to c- crises. We just need more of it. <laughs> And um, so more of what? More, more, of- and more of the peacekeeping forces, more effort on the peace processes, more uh, humanitarian and development assistance. Those are the tools that we use whenever there is a terrible crisis that unfolds. And it turns out there's something missing at the heart of all this. 
And we had to go through this process and start our own organization and work through it to, to, to fully internalize it. And that is that none of these international community interventions were addressing the core cause of the continuing violence and suffering in our view, because that core root cause, one could argue, is uh, the kleptocracies that are at the center of these different countries. These governments in Congo and Sudan and South Sudan and Somalia and other places around that region have been hijacked. They've been captured by a small group of people. There be military officials, commercial leaders, and their international collaborators, bankers, lawyers, others that set up the shell companies and move the money out. So while we innocently and, and naively and, 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 and with great generosity send billions of dollars a year into these countries to clean up these horrific human rights and humanitarian messes, billions of dollars are going out of those countries because they're actually fabulously wealthy places with gold and oil and diamonds and all these other incredible raw materials. And this small group of people that have hijacked the country and the governing institutions of the country have repurposed the state to privatize that wealth and put it into their own pockets, but not in the countries. Of course, they put it out in the international financial system, in the stuffed bank accounts, into real estate, into shell companies and all that. The whole thing is built on a house of sand. The whole international response system cannot work because we're not addressing the core cause of violence. And so that is what, over the last couple of years, we said, well, we've got to change. We've got to adapt. We've got to say, well, what is it? What could possibly impact the calculations of people who are willing to commit genocide, willing to commit war crimes, willing to commit rape as a tool of war, willing to you know, recruit child soldiers. How can we influence those cal their calculations to be able to, to stop, to, to incentivize peace over war, to incentivize the respect for the rule of law over mass human rights abuses? That was the challenge that we finally started to look into the eye of. So it seems like there are kind of two pieces there to break apart. One is the need to create political will, as you were saying, right? Political space. And, I'm, and I want to uh, dive into that and kind of understand your views on what's actually needed and how you generate that, and then what the strategies you think do that most effectively. And then there's a second part that you're talking about, which is actually understanding the root causes of the very conflicts that we're trying to resolve and suggesting that the tools at hand, whether it's peacekeeping operations, mediation, are insufficient. Um, and I'm curious in particular around how you think the endeavor and enterprise of generating political will creates more space for different policy tools? Well, I think that, in fact, um, you know, you can generate a great deal more political will, but if you do not have the proper analysis of the root cause, it is for not, or it is wasted in part. And I use the example of something that I spent a great deal of my uh, last 15 years of my life addressing, which is the 21st century's first genocide, as some people would refer to it, in Darfur. What we succeeded in accomplishing was building an incredible mass movement that lasted a few years, actually, of people all around the United States and around the world 
who were willing to write letters and show up at demonstrations and meet their members of Congress and write letters to the other and do all these the, the, the ways you, you, you raise awareness. They were willing to do all this stuff in support of people half a world away in the middle of the Sahara Desert, the people, places they'd never been to, never would go, never meet anybody from there. I mean, it was quite miraculous that Darfur, this place, this which most people couldn't find on a map before it happened and most probably couldn't now, captured the imagination of people. But what did all that activity end up doing? Almost nothing. It didn't impact the root causes of the problem there. What it did do, and, and one can't dismiss this, is it generated a great deal of humanitarian assistance and, and, and required the government of Sudan to allow those humanitarians into the region to provide assistance to the internally displaced camps because millions and millions of people were swept out of their homes in this genocidal campaigns and they ended up in camps. So lives were saved. So it wasn't for not, but it never addressed the causes. So if you don't have a sense of what the cause is, then generating political will could provide a palliative. It could provide a Band-Aid. And that's not to be scoffed at, keeping people alive is an utterly essential part of the overall response. But why not be able to address the root causes at the same time? And we never did, because the Sudan regime at the core of this that was committing the genocide uh, was left completely unscathed and intact. And was that an analytical failure? Did we not actually know what the root causes were and what levers we had? Or was it a failure to actually get the main decision makers to actually adopt the right strategy? It's kind of both, a failure of policy imagination. So, you know, I, I wouldn't expect George W. Bush to figure out what to do about Darfur, and I wouldn't expect most senators and congresspeople to. But I, so, so then, in fact, it does uh, fall upon the policy experts and those that are pushing agendas related to this place to have some imagination about what needs to be done or addressed in these particular cases. And in the case of Darfur, you know, the, the big activist effort was let's get those, those uh, vulnerable people in Darfur protected. So the, the big push was to get uh, United Nations and African Union peacekeeping forces to interposition themselves basically between the militias and the government forces and militias and the, and the populations. Now, that's a temporary Band-Aid. That is not a that doesn't address the cause, and so failure on the part of the activists and 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 uh, policy advocates for sure of which I was a part of, and um, but and, just, did you not know what to what the right target for your activism was at the time? See, I think I personally, I can only, speaking for myself, I feel like we didn't fully understand how what the vulnerabilities are of a regime that is willing to commit genocide. I think if you're going to influence a government anywhere in the world, look at Myanmar, Burma today. If you're going to look at, you know, how do you influence Assad and Syria? Like, you first have to make a fundamental assessment, a clear-headed, nuanced assessment of what the vulnerabilities of that regime is and the people who are central decision makers within it. And in this case, in Darfur, we didn't even... Think about that. It was more about well, what what are the, it's again? What are the usual things we do in the in the in response to African crisis? Let's just do more of those things. It was it was generally sort of a knee jerk reaction with let's just uh, call in the same cavalry we usually call in, and that was just such a 
crushing failure of a response, it forced me to rethink, well, what am I even doing? As a policy, a foreign policy advocate, as an African human rights advocate, I'm participating in this movement building that is, at the end of the day, destined to fail. <laughs> and so had to re- do the rethink. So one of the kind of thing, interesting uh, pieces of the Enough Project and its arc over the past many years is that it's um, kind of embraced a model of celebrity activism um, really wholeheartedly. And I think that, you know, some of the stories in how it's been extremely effective are, uh, are ones that completely resonate with somebody like me who is a humanitarian operating in spaces that there's just often not enough care around. And I think about the story of when you went with Angelina Jolie to the Congo and then told the story and posted on the United States Holocaust Museum and the servers went down because so many people visited it. And I'm curious as to just how you think about making the choice of engaging with uh, celebrities and what the upsides are and what some of the disadvantages and downsides are. Sure, I think you know the the, the pros and cons are definitely extreme. There, there's nothing uh, you know uh, middle of the road when you when you're dealing with um, high profile people like this. But um, I think on the pro side, the, the the ability to shine a spotlight on issues that just have none, pulseless issues. You know, suddenly one of these folks is willing to to take some of the light directed at them and redirect it into the into the uh, issue at hand. And suddenly we've got all kinds of, uh, of attention and, and media around the, the, the issues. So just basic attention grabbing alone, there's some value. But there's, a, there's secondary and tertiary value if, if, you, if you pursue it. As, for example, getting people active and engaged in support of the effort, whether it's just to provide money for humanitarian reasons or if it's to get them politically active so that they'll actually become part of the political will generation to do more. You know, celebrities are great recruiters. You know, people join organizations and movements often because they first heard about it because of a famous person they follow is passionate about it. And they're like, well, I want to learn about that. I want to know what these people are doing. And then, you know, the extraordinary thing that one wouldn't know unless you were there is that when you go to the halls of power in whatever country you go to, these doors swing wide open for these celebrities. So whereas a group of rabble-rousing activists may have a hard time getting into the White House or a hard time getting to see Senator X or, or Parliamentarian Y in what another country, if you bring along one of these celebrities, you know, the, the likelihood is you're going to get that appointment and more. The issue you were grappling with earlier was both mobilizing political will, but also directing it in the right way. And to what extent does the engagement of celebrities achieve the former, it definitely is an amazing mobilisation tool, but does it allow the nuanced uh, strategy that you you know is necessary to achieve your ends? Well, I think two of my allies uh, in, in these last sort of dozen years or so, Don Cheadle and, and George Clooney, two old pals from the Oceans movies, you know, they have, um, uh, uh, they represent to me the evolution that one can have that can allow for the nuances that are necessary to be a more effective advocate. Yesterday, 10.30, right? 10.30 in the morning, 15 bombs hit this tiny village where everyone is hiding in the rocks. And this is an unexploded bomb. It's buried up to its neck in the dirt. You know, when they first started, like anybody, they're just, they just want to help. 
But as time has evolved, as their involvement has evolved, and as they've traveled into the region multiple times in very dangerous situations, and uh, and spoken to more and more people and learned more and more about the issues, they've become much more sophisticated in their analysis uh, and their uh, will and their desire to to push the envelope on the policy and the freshness that sometimes these people bring because they're not foreign policy experts or they're not just pure activists, but there's like, yeah, but that's not working. So what are we going to do about it? You know, just that basic ability to pull back. When you invested your entire life in pushing peace processes and they're not working, it's sometimes you're so deep in it, it's hard for you. Well, couldn't we just tinker with this or couldn't we tinker? No, actually, you got to blow it up and start again. And I think George and Don are great examples of as they immersed themselves in the issues, as they traveled into places that most of us will never even think about going to, they became much more uh, sophisticated political actors and could be part of the evolution of this uh, effort that we're undertaking now uh, uh, in a way that that I think rivals the, the best policy experts I've worked with. So I think that one of the, the main critiques you see um, in the space around this kind of model of activism is that it fundamentally misses the voices of those you're advocating on behalf of. Um, so it's kind of the famous turn, nothing uh, for us, without us, that has come out of much of the advocacy in Africa. And, you know, kind of Nigerian-American author Teju Cole has famously coined this the white savior industrial complex, in part just because it's really missing those people. So when you go into the Congo with Ryan Gosling or into Sudan with George Clooney, um, there's not the Congolese person at the table with you or the Sudanese person at the table with you, and that there's something kind of fundamentally wrong about recreating those power structures. So how do you contend with with that argument? Well, two things. Um, The first is that what's been great about George and Don and Ryan is that they are always insistent on, to, to the maximum extent possible, having people who are from those regions with us. So when we go and do events uh, at the Congress or in the ho- at the Holocaust Museum or at the Council on Foreign Relations or when we go to see media folks, you know, th- we're bringing people who are from those regions so that it's not just us. Now, th- th- sometimes they dr- the media folks will reject it. You know, they're just like, no, it has to be. Sometimes they don't even want me. They just want George. So uh, and and it, so it's tough. But uh, but we've tried in a, in a, in many different ways connecting. Um, media to the folks from the ground uh, from those countries tried to do that. But secondly, I I think maybe more importantly for us, not to say that one or the other is is important, but for for our role, you know, at the end of the day, we're not there to try to say to the government of South Sudan or Central African Republic or Somalia, this is how you ought to run your country. We're saying to the United States government from where we come— that this is how you should run your foreign policy. And we as American citizens are uh, demanding at least to be heard uh, a, a voice in that process, uh, in, in that policymaking process. And, and 100% agree, these, most of these problems that we're talking about are, will be solved and settled and addressed primarily, almost exclusively by African leadership. It's, it's the fact is that the world being as inter- interdependent and globalized as it is, so many of the factors and causes of these problems and these crises are international. And so what we're trying to do more and more is address the international parts of that. 
And so I think that, you know, so highlight the important efforts of local human rights advocates, yes, and human uh, local peacemakers, absolutely. Local women's groups and empowerment and all that stuff, 100%. But we're going after the people in the international system that are underwriting and supporting and benefiting from the chaos in these places. And that is an evolution of our work that did not exist even a few years ago. And that's where what I've been so excited to have George and Don and Ryan and these kind of people at our side, because they can bring attention to this stuff like nobody else. I want to, I want to bookmark that, um, the new projects and following this kleptocracy. But I want to also kind of a, uh, ask a question that I think gets at the intersection of the challenge of um, kind of the models of celebrity activism and the actual very questions that you're asking. So. You're absolutely right. Celebrities and um, you know those who are famous get uh, disproportionate access to policymakers. Um, you can get meetings that you know normal individuals wouldn't get. I just wonder if like you think about isn't there something kind of meta going on there where you're essentially using individuals who have disproportionate access because of uh, the way that institutions are set up while critiquing that very same nature in other countries? I think you said you got 45 minutes with Obama to discuss. Uh, Sudan, for instance, off the back of your connections with George Clooney, for instance. Yeah, I mean, uh, and they're they're really 100% down with this idea. Like, they, George knows that part of his role is not to be necessarily the policy analyst who spent his entire... No, it's to open that door because he can. Hey, listen, would we like to have a different world where it was all a meritocracy? Sure. But luckily, we combine... The, a world that is obsessed with celebrity and doors swing wide open with folks that once that door swings open have a lot to say because they've spent part of their lives diving in deep into these issues. So I, I think all of the critiques are certainly credible and worth discussing and, and on a case-by-case basis. But what I've seen result is that, okay, so... The, the, for example, that meeting you mentioned, the, and we had a number of meetings over the course of seven of eight years with President Obama, but that last one we had, you know, we, we went into very great detail with Susan Rice and Valerie Jarrett and President Obama about how you can utilize anti-money laundering uh, measures that the Treasury Department has to actually bring to bear pressure on these governments in support of U.S. Uh, peace processes. Like, and he was like, well, this is great because we hadn't really talked about this before. So we're trying to bring cutting-edge stuff to them from, by, the, by the unusual nature of our work and use those, that, door, that door being open to us to, to present creative options to policymakers that may never have heard this before. By 2015, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion, and food production will need to grow by 70%. Farmers are now working with IBM and Watson to help increase their crop yields. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com smart. One of the things that worries me right now is that we're becoming almost inured to this kind of violence, and that if you take Syria as an example... The world suddenly woke up when they saw horrific images coming out of Syria. But quickly, people uh, go back to their own world and they become uh, immune from the next shock. So how, is you, how as an activist do you think about maintaining people's interests 
um, and not getting into a, a rather untasteful inflation of images. It's, it's a terrible paradox or, 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 or difficult choice that the organizations usually have to make. You know, do, do you keep selling the, the crisis in order to keep attention lodged on there? And I, I think we've generally tried to avoid that, but we, we're not trying to raise money to, to, to give food and medicine, which is another um, uh, challenge altogether. So I think for for us the decision there's still, there's still a need to sort of tell a simple story yes. and and you know even with even the facts on how many people have died we don't know usually and yet we're almost forced to provide a more certain picture than is 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 the reality. Yeah, I think I think I have very humble um, expectations with respect to sustaining uh, public attention for long periods of time on these crises. So you've got to when you have the moment, you've got to have a credible response, an answer that addresses the root causes instead of, and it goes back to the thing we were talking about earlier. If you're just getting them to to, to get excited and get uh, compassionate and get uh, energized about addressing a, 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 a symptom instead of the cause, then it's just going to be wasted. Uh, uh, and so what we've tried to do now, that the, the, the sort of pivot we've made is to say, when you have that moment, when the window opens up, when the spotlight comes on for a minute, because it ain't going to be much longer in this news cycle, uh, it's got to focus on the core problems and how to address it. And then what we are doing, and along with many others, is building a, a sustainable infrastructure of response that can keep working on the issues even when the spotlight's off, because most of the time we're not going to have any interest or any uh, spot, light on these issues. I'd love to hear more about that pivot towards targeting more global power networks and the work you're doing. Can you, have you got an example that tells the story from start to finish? Well, I think like an example of the, 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 what is one of the deadliest wars in the world today in South Sudan. And you, you have at the core of it just a competitive, corrupt networks feuding and, and battling for control of the prize, the prize being the seat of government. Whoever gets that government, it's a zero-sum game. If you're in, you get to, to steal as much of the oil money as you can. If you're out, you are out, and maybe you're going to be in prison, maybe you're going to be killed, maybe you're going to be kicked out of the country. So it's, the stakes are extreme, and so the violence between these factions is extreme. And you see the, 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 the kind of conflict that has unfolded in the last four years now for almost five years, has been uh, uh, one of the most shocking in, uh, on the face of the earth. And so um, this competitive corruption, this uh, uh, competition for the control of the spoils of the state um, uh, has to be addressed. You have to disincentivize the control of the state in the sense that you no longer can use it as a complete and total uh, uh, looting machine to take uh, the resources of the country and put in your own personal accounts. So how do you do that? You've got to go after the money that's going out of the country because nobody's putting dollars under their mattresses. They are moving it into the international financial system through the global banks. They've The money that comes out, it's all in U.S. dollars, uh, which is very relevant to what the Treasury Department has jurisdiction over. Because if you commit a crime in a U.S. dollar, even if you're not an American citizen, it's subject to the potential uh, seizure uh, by 
Treasury. So what we've tried, what we've built is a team of financial forensic investigators to follow the money that's coming out of these war zones to show here, here's, here's how these people are actually profiting from war. It's not just that they're struggling to, to who gets a chance to, 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 to win the battle. They're actually making massive amounts of money off the violence, instability, and the, and the cratering of the rule of law. And so it's, it becomes the objective to, to hollow out the institutions of government, to ensure that the Ministry of Justice doesn't do justice, to ensure the police and the military don't protect people but actually are part of the looting machine, and go after that money and, and create a disincentive to the looting of the state. How does, where does the disincentive come in? Is if you suddenly, say, just think any of us, what would happen if you no longer could use a bank? No longer could get a mortgage, no longer use a credit card, no longer go and use an ATM machine. You know, the banks are legally obligated to block transactions and to not provide services to people who are laundering the proceeds of a crime through their uh, institution. Now, most of the time they look the other way because so much money is flowing that results from this. But if we find evidence and bring it to the banks, they're like, well, we got to act now because we're, we, we otherwise we will get a tremendous fine for allowing money laundering going through our, through our banks. Now, so the objective is to freeze the networks that are destroying these countries, freeze them out of the international financial system. So if you have the president of South Sudan, his wife, the, a number of his ministers, a number of his generals, and then their commercial cutouts, and who often are the family members, so the, uh, the president of South Sudan, for example, has many uh, s- s- children who are shareholders of companies that are making millions and millions of dollars off of this conflict by s- moving arms and doing all kinds of things. And so when you s- pro- provide evidence to banks and governments, here is where all of this stolen money is going. It's going right through the international financials. They're obliged to act. So over time, as we develop the evidentiary uh, dossiers and provide more and more of this information to governments and banks, it's going to be harder and harder for the president of South Sudan and his family members and his and his associates and his international collaborators to use that international financial system to abuse uh, uh, the, the country and, and loot it. So one of the reasons I ask is because I think about uh, what the potential roles of corruption plays in these countries. And I think there's a complex story there oftentimes in which... Uh, Corruption is a strategy that politicians use to support a broader elite structure or even redistribute wealth down to, you know, potentially their ethnic group or the region that they're from um, in some ways that actually tends to be common knowledge. So, you know, from my experiences in the Congo, everybody knows exactly how corrupt people are. And then sometimes you actually even get local communities bidding on more corrupt people because it's a signal to them that they may indeed receive more wealth at the end of the day. And so there's very famous research from India where they tend to actually nominate and elect uh, criminals consistently to the parliament. And there's a question of like, why are they electing criminals? And one of the theories and kind of evidence that comes out from a scholar named Milan Vaishnav is that people are voting on this because they see that as a strong signal that their politician will do them well. And so I just kind of wonder, and sometimes, you know, what is the role of information doing here, particularly, and how do you think about it over kind of a local political economy and the kind of local uh, political audiences? Well, in the countries where we're working in, the 
corruption is the operating system. Like it's not a, an aberration. <laughs> it's not something that is tolerated or sort of is just a sort of a nice fringe benefit. The purpose of government has become the extraction of wealth for personal uh, gain. And then some of that gain is redistributed in exactly the way you're talking. Vertically integrated corrupt networks where all the way down to the local police officer or the local customs official, they are given a little slice of the pie, but then they have to pursue the corrupt activities on the ground by, you know, shaking people down, by allowing certain people to come across the border, by overtaxing others, all these kinds of little, so those are the crumbs. The that, those are the hundreds of thousands of dollars here and there in neighborhoods and people vote for the people who can help them more. The real money, the billions of dollars are concentrated at the core, the kleptocracy at the center where these military and civilian officials with their commercial collaborators are milking the natural resources of the state and pulling the money out of the country. That really is – and if, if that is left unaddressed, then these symptoms – these, the crumbs that go out into the, to the, the, the patronage networks and the kleptocratic networks that go all the way down to the local officials uh, will remain intact. But you've got to break it at the center. And because the money is so large, we're talking about billions, not millions, uh, going out in dollars and in euros and in pounds, that, you know, if, unless, that's, unless something is dressed in terms of stopping that outflow, the system will be undeterred. And is it becoming harder to track all the financial flows, particularly with things like cryptocurrencies allowing uh, transactions to go under the radar? So, so far, no. We've been seeing hardly any of the major African looting networks utilize these things because there still yet is not much of an effort to go after their resource. So we're just starting. Like we started this um, entity called The Century just a couple of years ago and really just in the last year have started to provide evidence. So it will impact, slowly, surely impact the way these operators move their resources. But so far, it hasn't been able to do much. Because again, what, you know, what, what the American government and Europeans and the United Nations do in African countries, well, oh, let's sanction this mid-level officer, one guy, and they don't even implement the sanctions, they don't even enforce the sanctions. So it's completely different than the model of when you're dealing with major drug networks or or folks trying to build nuclear bombs like it's a complete or, or terrorist organizations i mean remember when uh, bin laden was uh taken down the the the, the treasure trove of, of information they found was littered with all this his complaints and 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 concerns that he could no longer move money when the international when the united states and the broader international community goes after someone's finances you can make an impact on their calculations and so that i mean it just hasn't been they don't they haven't needed to use bitcoin or any of the other cryptocurrencies, because right now they can walk, you can be a sanctioned official in one country and walk into a bank in another country. By the way, you're supposed to have a visa ban, but you're saying, and, and, and walk in and do banking because the, the enforcement is so lax. So that's what we're trying to do. Tighten up the existing regime and then use new tools to really go after that money. And the potential targets there are as much private financial institutions as political leaders. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the banks are the key to all this. I mean, that's where the lifeblood of the international system is. The life, it's their getaway car. Most of their money goes right out through the banks. In broad of- daylight, by the way. They're not hiding and they're not using cryptocurrencies, as we talked about earlier. They're just going straight to the banks and, and laundering it right through the system. So I was going to ask you, in 
the current context with the current president, does it almost make you think, what's the point of advocacy? Because I can't imagine the current administration taking up the, the right measures. But I guess if you are targeting uh, the private sector in particular, that that seems a more clear path to impact. The private sector, definitely. But <clears throat> what we found is, and this has been the case sort of going over the last 35 years that I've been sort of in working in and out of government, is that there are always senior people and working level people who are deeply committed to the work that they have been given, to the jobs that they're inhabiting, and they're willing to work on this stuff and press it and push it. You know, you would think that things like money laundering wouldn't necessarily be <laughs> the thing that this particular administration would, uh, would champion. Uh, or anti-money laundering measures, it turns out there are a lot of people in the system that are willing to work on it. And the truth is that Africa is so far out of the mainstream, so far out of the eye of the what that top level of the White House cares about, that you can move a lot of stuff. And it's not surreptitious. It's just that they don't care enough to get involved and get And hey, listen, we'll take it. So I want to pivot us into uh, South Sudan, an area where you've worked for many, many years and the Enough Project has worked. Um, South Sudan uh, became independent in 2011 following many years of brutal civil war um, with uh, what is now Sudan um, and internal conflicts. And um, there were many advocates around the table um, suggesting that secession and independence was the way to go. And since independence, the country has spiraled back into civil war. Uh, Four million people have been displaced to date. Uh, there have been an estimated 50,000 plus deaths as a result of this civil war. And I think that while there were people around the table kind of expressing caution around independence and what may come with it, I think many folks in the policy arena were kind of blind to what became clear as what would be the profound governance challenges, ethnic divisionism, uh, corruption. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on what you think the lessons of South Sudan's independence are? And what have you taken away from that? Yeah, that's, it's a, your setup is perfect. I mean, you're absolutely right. The you, know, you had this country that was born with all this optimism because, oh, you know, they get no debt, they have, they have tremendous natural resource wealth and, um, you know, all the international goodwill and behind it, no real superpower disagreements generally about, you know, the, 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 uh, the uh, independence. And suddenly and almost immediately, um, uh, the as I said, the corruption issue was the driver of what eventually became the political schism that eventually became the war. Because you had these cliques within the government that had developed, within the South, new South Sudan government that had developed over years when they were in rebellion. So there were, there were already uh, divisions within. And so suddenly... They become in charge of a state, a state not just uh, with in name only, but that as a result of the peace deal, billions of dollars were suddenly pouring into the coffers of the of the uh, of the treasury of this new state that had no checks and balances. Uh, it was insanity. I, there was this, this was the agreement, um, and so billions start pouring in, and not a dime. Not a penny went to infrastructure or social services or anything like that. It was just taken. And, and again, who's at the trough? Who's in? Who's out? And, and more and more resentment is built by those that aren't getting their fair share or what they thought was their fair share. It's our turn to eat was their famous phrase. 
We have fought all these years and suffered all these years to get our independence now. <laughs> it's going to be our turn to eat. That's not an unusual No, it's scenario. normal. So why, so do, why, why couldn't yeah, we have seen exactly. that? Why but, couldn't the international... The UN's pouring money. The US government was pouring money into institution building exercises when the, 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 the termites had eaten away at the bottom of the, the house already. So go ahead, build another wall. What's the point of that? All of it's going... All the money's going away. It was shocking how fast it was the deterioration of that ent enterprise. And it became just this free-for-all. It was not a government within a year. So I, want, I want to push you on this because I think it's something that we could have potentially seen coming in, you know, in retrospect. And there's a famous story in which you met uh, the um, South Sudanese uh, rebel leader, Rik Machar, who was a, you know, crucial character in the history of the independence movement um, in the early 80s. And I think you spent a few days with him um, and had kind of come away thinking like, he's the real deal. He's about to build a more inclusive Sudanese People Liberation Army. He's going to kind of uh, create the type of movement that we actually need. And the story that you write about is that, you know, you were inspired by this, but a few days later bore witness to uh, a massacre that him and his troops had launched that killed 2,000. And you kind of came you kind of came away with eyes wide open. But he was the same player at the table years that... later. And and I'm curious as to, you know, how many times how can how many times can we learn this lesson, right? Like it don't it's just we... obvious that we don't inv we shouldn't invest hope in individuals. We should look at the basic incentives and structures. Mm -hmm. But so couldn't you have seen this leader, this group, their behavior, and said, actually, what we're not going to do is uh, uh, award this with an independence voter secession, right? So I don't know. How do, you, how do you square kind of what you saw in the 80s with support for these movements into, in, into a place that has now given way to civil war? You know, in that, that 1991, when um, I was moored out on this island in the middle of the rainy season, with Riyak Mashar, eventually the leader of uh, vice president of the South Sudan and the leader of a rebel movement, uh, you know, I was 28 years old, and uh, you know, I was just like, this guy's speaking such great truths about the internal rot of of the Sudanese state and and even of the rebellion that he was about to rebel against, and it, you know, it made a lot of sense to me, you know. And then, you know, as you said, a few, few weeks later, I'm traveling through the, the region and I'm seeing all these corpses on the ground, uh, like by the thousands, and a direct result of his military campaign. And so, I mean, at the age of 28, as a sort of long-haired activist NGO kid, I figured out that the words and the actions <laughs> were wildly asymmetrical. And uh, so the idea that we were going to, in 30 years later, or whatever it was, you know, going to support these people who had ripped apart their uh, region of Sudan, the South, uh, uh, over those corresponding decades. That we were just going to say, okay, great, you can take over billions of dollars now and to run a state, um, you know, without any kind of checks and balances, without any uh, oversight. I just think that. The the the, stru the the structural agree the, the the agreement was structurally flawed to not have some level of in, independent oversight not by international people by the thousands and thousands of South Sudanese who had gone and got college degrees who had who had been uh, 
uh, pushed out of their country uh, as a result of the war over the past few decades and gone and got education and wanted to come back to help their country. Instead, the same guys who ripped the country to pieces took over and have now looted everything and stolen everything and sent the country back to war. So, yes, there it should have been seen and there should have been man, many checks and balances created against it. And we shouldn't have been doubling down on support by throwing more money into the into the mix by saying, let's use this money for in, in, in supporting this institution building here and this institution building there. Because it was all a big shell game. It was all just a setup for uh, mass theft. And um, I, again, if you don't deal with that basic corruption issue, that basic element of governance, I don't see how, you know, we're just going to keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again. And in situations where any, you know, it doesn't have to be a new state. It can be a, a, a state that a new government that results from a, 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 the end of a war. Suddenly, want people want to wipe the slate clean and just jump in there and start doing the same thing we always do, and the, the results are the same. So, just thinking about that experience personally, what's your advice for NGOs, advocates who are in that situation day in day out, where they're trying to make judgment calls about a given situation with limited information? How do you maintain some humility in that situation? I think the difference between that early '90s and today is like there is just no excuse for anyone not understanding or knowing that the information is so present. You have. Human Rights Watch and Amnesty and Global Witness and all these other groups that have the voluminous accounting of what all of these groups are and governments are around the world and what they what they represent and what they're responsible for. So to to to, to sort of not know and sort of stumble around, with, you know, it, I, I think is probably you know problematic that somebody who wouldn't would have no information or no idea be be uh, stumbling around making decisions in. In high leveraged, high high risk situations, so I think that, that the information is there. But secondly, it's it's about understanding. It's, it's this bottom line that I guess I'm just a broken record for. Unless you're, you know, if you're going to go into a place as a diplomat. Now, if you're a humanitarian, you're trying to provide humanitarian assistance. You just don't want you don't want to make it worse by empowering or overly empowering the the structures that are causing the problem. So that's always the the challenge of the humanitarian space. But for the diplomats and for those that are trying to solve the problem, they've got to go at the root causes, not at the symptoms. John Prendergast, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening. I'd just like to thank a few people from the International Rescue Committee who made all this possible. Catherine Long, Ben Moskovics, and Alex Bandea. And at Vox Media, our team is senior producer Golda Arthur, associate producer Jelani Carter, and Jarrett Floyd is our engineer. Vox Media's executive producer of audio is Nishat Kowa. We would love to hear what you think about this show, who you'd like to see on it, or anything you were thinking. Drop us a note at displaced at rescue.org. And on Twitter, I am at Grant M. Gordon, and Ravi is at R. Gurumurthy. Review us too. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.